Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. We are the showrunners and co-creators of Billions. And this is... Behind the Billions. Behind the Billions. We're going to talk about how we make the show, the decisions we made in terms of uh, what we decided to shoot, how we wrote it. We are going to share the inside skinny on what it's like to make the show. Uh, Dave, I'm sorry I just said inside skinny. You did. I mean, you've set the bar high. We have a lot to provide now. And we will be providing it on Sunday nights right after the show. We'll have guests who are actors on the show will come in and talk to us, people who make cameos on the show. Should we interview crew members too? Well, we're going to talk about some crew members, maybe standout crew members, superstars, crew superstars, if you will. Really psyched to do this, psyched to talk to everybody about the show. Listen in on Sunday nights right after the show airs on Showtime. Don't have a name, but he's part of a stick-up crew. Took off a stash house last month. My guy Barksdale's coming back on them. In a big way. Jesus, they must have killed this kid four or five times. Usually when you watch The Wire, a van, as you know, they lull you into the episode with some dialogue that hints to something that will come full circle or just like kind of to get you into the scene uh this shit started with a dead body and yeah yes it started we we out the gate fast uh on episode six uh appropriately tied the wire because in fact so much of this episode is built around uh, a very key portion of the wiretap both in a failure uh, in a failure and a successful way and so the episode immediately starts with omar's partner brandon dead and not just dead but like dead dead you know tortured bloodied beaten a very stark image and the ripple effect from this death is not only something that we see the long the short-term effect in this episode but the long-term effect um which we will get into when we do a deep dive into wallace because this death is so central and significant to what happens to his character how it changes him um, and just it, a lot of the ills that we see in the urban, uh, community and just in these types of communities, period, like it, this becomes a very symbolic death for that. Um, so it's, it's really amazing how much this death had, how much it rang true for a lot of things that themes that we've talked about on the wire. So what were some of your overall observations about this particular episode, Van? So the episode begins with the death of Brandon, Omar's companion and his partner in crime. But it begins with something even before that. What you, The first thing you see out of this episode, um, and we're going to make it a point to start diving deeper into the scenes that precede the credit roll on the wire, because they're always very um, prescient about like what the tone of the show is going to be. This particular one begins, the, the end of it is Brandon's death. The, the the end of it is is sort of uh um you see that on the other side of it which the first thing you see is who Wallace is because we've seen Wallace being sort of the wide eyed kid in the pit we've seen Wallace being a childlike kid in the pit we've seen Wallace but we've never seen something else about Wallace is that he is responsible for a whole household of youngsters they look up to him there is this sort of um, dichotomy of the character between the childlike nature that he exists when he's a part of the game, but 
in this one scene, you see that he is actually the head of a household. Rod and shine. Come on, man, get up. Boy, come on, get up. School day, y'all gonna be late. Let's go, get up to school. Go, get up. Come on, man. Damn, Wallace. Damn, Wallace, nothing. The hoppers like y'all don't go to school. Soon enough, they're gonna be calling around. All y'all gonna end up in foster care. Y'all want foster care? Let's climb your little black ass back in the beds then. Get out my way, man. Damn, too early for this shit. And when I see that scene like that, it. It, it, it kind of jars me back into the fact of what it actually means for that kid, Wallace, to have strife. If he has strife, all of those kids are going to have strife. You see him wake everybody up. You see them get get ready for school. You see him, uh, you see them, uh, him give them, you know, ask them whether or not they've gotten their homework done. Just things that a parent would do. And this is coming from a 14 or 15-year-old kid. So you're going to see how somebody... I couldn't have done that at 14 and 15 for a bunch of kids like that. I wasn't in that position. You're going to see how a fully formed individual in one sense still has reservations and misconceptions about the world that they are in. And those reservations and misconceptions about that world will come to an end the moment he sees what he has done. Very important. Wallace doesn't see what Weebay did and what Stinkum did, and what Bird did. Wallace sees what he did. He is the one who made the call, him and Poot. He is the one that set it into motion, that led to a human being being tortured. This is a very, very pivotal moment in the life, I would imagine, of any criminal figure. This is the moment where you decide either I'm cut out for this shit or I'm not. And this is the beginning of us realizing that Wallace is not cut out for this shit. Yeah, I mean, and I think there have been hints along the way that he wasn't cut, cut out for it. And then finally, you see in a very jarring fashion that he isn't. Uh, I, I think a, a major observation for me beyond the, the Wallace stuff, um, which we'll dive into in a moment, was that the police, even when they try to be a step ahead, they're always three steps behind. And it is... <laughs> Very appropriate that, uh, of course, Dwight Santangelo is taking a piss. He misses out on what they've been trying to get, which is a the whole time, the whole time, which is eyes on Avon, finally seeing what he what he looks like. But not only that, putting him together with his actual crew. I think a major part of what happens in this is not only the police being behind, but finally Daniels makes a decision that he's in. And even though McNulty was quite the asshole, as McNulty always is, and trying to get him and goad him, pressure him, sometimes disrespect him to get to this point, I think he even sees from what the repercussions are if they have asked this case. And so finally, Daniels decides that, you know what? Fuck it. I'm in. The murder warrant's on hold. The deputy gave us another month. His original mission was to just get some, maybe a couple quick clearances, just nothing complicated. That was the original mission. And he understands very much in this episode that can't be the mission if they actually want to do some real police work. So it's it's a lot of uncomfortable realizations on uh, on multiple fronts from, you know, Wallace to what the police have to do um, and even some of the the roles that people are kind of finding out that they play in this much larger pic picture and much larger issue 
of drugs, inner city violence, and all these things. Just a quick recap of what happened here in episode six, uh, season one still. So as I mentioned, Brandon, Omar's lover, he's dead. Uh, Wallace, his intel, which was given about where Brandon was, if you all remember, uh, it was Brandon and Omar and their other buddy who robbed one of the Barksdale stash houses. And they, of course, uh, got eyes on who did, you know, they knew who did it. And of course, uh, Brandon accidentally said Omar's name. Wallace sees him in an arcade playing one of his favorite video games and gives up the intel to D'Angelo, who passes along to Stringer, Weebay, the rest of the crew. And the result is Brandon is now dead. So Wallace is struggling to cope with his role, basically, in Brandon's murder. And in this episode, we see um, his innocence, the last remaining bits of his innocence being taken away. So there's that part. Uh, Then on the police side, you have Rawls trying to throw a wrench in the major crime unit's tactical plan. you have uh, D'Angelo and Chardine starting to get a little bit closer. You have the the police further connecting a few more dots as they continue to try to bring um, down the Barksdales. And of course, you have more hijinks by the crackhead back, Batman and Robin in <laughs> Johnny and our man Bubbles. But we should delay it. I mean, let's just dump into Wallace because I think this is literally the most significant thing that happens in here is is finding out or we're en route to to kind of this path that he's on like you I was struck by how he was actually living the fact that he's a caretaker and a father for a lot of these kids and I couldn't help but think about how Bodie uh previously tried to punk him when he threw the bottle at him for playing at a playing with a toy and what Wallace is doing taking care of these kids who are also parentless who are on their own and trying to keep them together so that social services won't intervene is that what what wallace is doing is way more manly than what bodie is doing bodie lived with his grandmother you know what i'm saying i mean you know know what i mean and 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 that in and of itself is a ridiculously astute observation that's a very important thing to say um the version of manhood that is somehow somehow uh taught and reinforced out there on the corner has nothing to do with what manhood actually is, if it, it, it when you when you look at Wallace taking care of people, giving of himself, sacrificing for people, he's waking up earlier so to make sure that they don't get up late. Responsibility, dedication, reliability, love, empathy, trust. Those are manly qualities, not aggression and fronting and you know, promiscuity and violence and all of those things. That's the type of masculinity that kind of gets passed around in a system where it benefits you. Those are the things that Bodie believes it takes to be a man, whereas Wallace himself is exhibiting the actual things you will want out of a man, even to the fact that he is morally and spiritually compromised by the death of, of Brandon that shows you a depth and a feeling that will make you a fully formed, as my man Jason Wilson up there um, from the Cave of Adullam, it's a transitional uh, academy up there in Detroit, in your hometown, that, that teaches boys how to be comprehensive men. Like, Wallace is on his way to being a comprehensive man, a man who understands uh, when he's hurt someone. Um, and it's a, it, it's a shame, the trajectory in which his life goes, but you just start to see 
that for the first time he realizes just how deep the water that he is in is. I'm sure he had known about people that had been aced out of the game. There's no way that he had gotten to that point and not understood that some people don't survive this. I'm sure that he got that. I'm 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 a, mi- a million percent sure that he got that. But to know that you could be beaten, burned, stabbed, scarred, and laid out for the entire hood to see, this is what you are in, probably for the first time made him think, yo, am I a good dude? Like, am can you be what D'Angelo says, which is a human being, and just be a part of this? And it's actually D'Angelo, for all of D'Angelo's, we ain't got to hurt nobody. We ain't got to kill nobody. We ain't got to do people like dogs. D'Angelo is the one who seeks to normalize it for Wallace. As a matter of fact, in this episode, we see a little bit more of D'Angelo, the drug dealer, and what he has had to become to be that uh, than we have in past episodes. Well, I'm so glad you pointed that out because one of the... One of the stark moments, one of the moments that stay with you in this series, in this um, episode is D'Angelo, when he takes the money for, uh, you know, for when he accepts the reward from from Avon for them getting Brandon uh, killed or the information that leads to Brandon getting killed. The look on Wallace's face when he sees D'Angelo willingly profit from somebody else's murder is such a fierce and strong look of disappointment. It's like in that moment, Wallace realized all these little life lessons that D'Angelo was trying to teach him while they in the pit and while they sitting there on that raggedy ass couch, that it was all bullshit. Because at the end Mm. of the day, he ain't no different than Avon, Stringer, Stinkum, Weebay, none of the rest of them, even though he was always trying to position himself as more humane. And he's so disgusted by it that it drives home further everything that you said that he is just somebody who was just kind of playing at this game and didn't understand the real ramifications, which I know to maybe people who are kind of absorbing and processing what we're saying, that seems kind of ridiculous because he's living in the middle of a war zone. He knows that there are real people he's selling these drugs to, but even though he sees heads on a daily basis and he sees the ramifications of all these Uh, of this criminal activity, it never hits him that people really actually get hurt because he's never, he's seen it, but he hasn't really seen it. And this is- he's never done it. Well, he's never done it. He's never been a contributor to it, like a personal one. I'm I'm assuming that Wallace never put in no work in with the Chrome before. Right. So, I mean, he's seen it. I mean, he said it earlier in the episode. It's the projects, the customer be fucked up. He knows that it's the customer- And this is a very important thing that you talk about when you're talking about the drug trafficker. Like I said, I've known drug traffickers uh, uh, in my past. I know do sell dope in Baton Rouge. It's the way that it goes. They don't look at that as any different than anyone who goes to Popeye's every single day. You know, they look at it as, look, if it's fried chicken is not good for you, even though Popeye's chicken is fucking fantastic. Uh, shit's and I'm not delicious. Trying to Hello. Bes- I'm not, I'm not dismir- besmirching them. <laughs> fried chicken is uh fried chicken is not uh is good for you, right? But if you go there every day and you end up with high blood pressure or high cholesterol, that's your fault. That's the way those guys are gonna look at that. And they don't look at they look at the drug game in the same way. These guys are going to get high some kind of way. It's just who's gonna get rich from it. 
mainly me. So Wallace probably doesn't see the humanity in a dope fiend because he's been around them his whole life. They gonna get high. But he does know when he is the person that makes the move that gets somebody's eyes burned out of their skull. That is a painting you painted. I did that. That like, I am the reason why. I know that this guy came back on us. He's the one that did this. But when you see the burns in his face, when you see the, the cuts on his things, I did that. And to have to step back from that work of art and know that you Van Gogh'd it, you Picasso'd it, to know that that's from you, that's probably a wake-up call, if not for anything else. Imagine in the last moments of somebody's life like that. And so you can see it was very well done by Michael B. Jordan. Shout out to Mike, man. When, when he's sitting on the couch and he's talking to D'Angelo. thing about it was his eye. His eye was blown out. And the other one was open. And yo, ding. It fucks me up. It's like he's looking out, like he sees everything, you know? Don't think about it. I can't. Fuck. Yo. Let that shit go. Just let it go. How you gonna let that go? Well, I wonder, too, if maybe some of the reason he had that reaction to seeing Brandon killed um, because, as you know, as, as you pointed out and as we know, people around in his environment get killed all the time and him being responsible, I think, was one piece of it. But I wonder if part of it, there was some level of he could relate um, in the sense that it's what's also significant is where he spots Brandon. Like, he doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, he doesn't spot him on the corner. He doesn't spot him. Um, even doing, you know, participating in, in robbing somebody else, he spots him in an arcade playing a video game, doing something yeah. that I'm sure Wallace has done a thousand times, doing something perfectly mundane and routine, something someone in his age group would do. And I think that's what makes it hit that much harder is that he saw his last, the last time he laid eyes on Brandon, he saw him in a perfectly humane moment. And nothing that it would indicate that this is the same dude that'll put a shotgun in somebody's face just to, um, you know, just to rob them, just to rob a drug dealer. And, you know, it, I, I think why Wallace's character, why his, uh, why what happens to him and how everything unfolds, why that always strikes people so harshly is because so many of us, I mean, there's a lot of characters in this, in this series that we can identify with, that we can relate to, that we knew. Wallace is different. In so many respects, because it is the the perfect, unfortunately perfect caricature of what happens to a lot of young black men who are forced to be adults when they are just literally children. And what I've noticed throughout watching this series again is I'm much more cognizant of how young they are. And that's what makes it. Yeah, that's what makes it hit harder. Like when we discussed this um, an episode or so ago when Bodie was like, yo, I'm just 16. And you're like, damn, this dude is just 16. So you yeah. just project that, like, what is this fool going to be? Well, you, you know, I won't say what happened. But anyway, you project on what, what that might look like later, just how they start so young. And so to be this age and to be raising, we don't know. I don't think it's ever spelled out whether the the kids that they are staying in the abandoned row house are actually related to Wallace. Like, we have no idea, really. They could be kids in the neighborhood. They could be his own brothers and sisters. We have no clue. And... Mm-hmm. 
he's forced in this situation where he is the head of a household that may or may not actually be his. And even to some degree with him providing a place to stay for Poot. And it's just funny to me how Poot and Bodie, they run around playing grown up, right? You know, Bodie is always, um, you know, ready. He bought that action, ready to whoop on somebody, protect his turf. He's hardcore. Poot is out there trying to bang everything that moves, trying to play Mm -hmm. like being a man. And Wallace is the one stuck in this situation of actually having to deal with real manhood, despite how young he is. You come from a sports background. You like saying the least. You've covered sports your entire uh, 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 professional life. Um, I have talked and covered sports. We all know that when you cover athletes, um, no matter where they're from, you hear stories, right? Harrowing stories about what they've overcome. Uh, we recently just saw the Jordan documentary, great, uh, fantastic stuff. And when you watch that documentary, this ep- the second episode, very affecting uh, episode, is about Scottie Pippen and about some of the things that Scottie Pippen went through um, when he was coming up. If you listen to T.O.'s story, you listen to some of the things that these guys went through coming up, and you, Jesus Christ, Juan Dixon. If you guys don't know some of the things that went on with Juan Dixon, former Maryland Terrapin. That's an incredible story. Uh, Jesus, yeah. how hard his life was and what he went through. Uh, it's very, very, it's like almost impossible for him to have been become who he became in life. I want people to know something, people that are listening to the sound of my voice. When you hear those stories about people who have overcome these situations where they've been forced to go and take care of their whole families, they are infinitely lucky. That is, they are, that is insanely fortuitous. Do you know how many situations with people who are being forced to care for all of these people forced into situations to where they're the the breadwinner, forced into situations where they they don't they have to grow up fast, and then it doesn't work, and then they end up dead, and then they end up on drugs, and then they end up not making it happen, and then five or six other people are victimized behind them. So when I'm seeing this situation as a as a as an a, a, a grown adult man. And The Wire is a show that never does any favors for you. It makes you lift the mental and emotional weight yourself. It doesn't give you a, a, a rosy look at the end of anything. I happen to think, wow, there's a Wallace out there right now, and he's not going to get to the NBA. He don't run a 4-3. It's not going to happen. It's, a, it's a, the, a, a, a coin toss about whether or not he gets to a place of stability where he can help people or whether or not two or three other generations of victimized come in right behind him. And, you know, and so to me, it just holds so much weight. And I think about Simons and Burns having seen these stories play out over and over and over again, you know, the, the method that they felt to deliver them to the people uh, it, it's just, it, it was really affecting television. And this was a really, really, this episode right here, is one of those grabbers to me. Yeah. Um, And the thing is, I mean, as we know, um, Van, is that there's way more Wallaces than LeBron James. It's why I always, I say this jokingly and with great reverence and great respect that LeBron James was built in a lab. And I don't just say that because of his physical gifts, you know, being 6'8", 260-ish, you know, he's vacillated since he's gained and lost weight throughout his career. But um, it's not just because of his talent. 
But it is because there was nothing in the way he grew up that ever suggested he would ever become what he did. It's one of the greatest, if not arguably the greatest American sports story we've ever heard of for a kid mm-hmm. to have moved 11 times. His mother, I believe, was 14 years old when she had him. And mm-hmm. to come from that and all her struggles, that poverty, him moving around for him to even graduate high school, much less get on a track to become a billionaire. It's ridiculous. And I agree with you. The problem is that with those stories, um, and this is not to get off on too much of a tangent, but with those stories, people start thinking overcoming poverty is easy. And they not only start to think that it's easy, they start to think that they start to normalize it and say, oh, no, no, this is the way, this is how you earn the American dream. This is how you you do that. It's like you just overcome and they never look at what is it that put them there or why these circumstances are so pervasive. And part of my frustration even now, even though I think, you know, we're all under the specter of COVID and we're dealing with that. But one particular frustration I have is that we're all clapping and cheering and booting on our healthcare officials. They should, they deserve this. They deserve all the praise, all the credit, everything else. But when this is over, we will not take a look at the healthcare system that put them in that position to begin with. We will not look at the inequality and we will not look at the inequity. We will just take it as it just being the rule rather than understanding that this is a gross exception to what happened and we need to deal with the problem. Wallace, what happened to Wallace is the common story. That's what happens Mm -hmm. to people who are in that situation. And we get to lie to ourselves and thinking they all wind up like LeBron and they don't. And so from a sense of reality, I was thankful for Wallace's story to counter this constant narrative and trope as if poverty is something that can be easily overcome. Poverty, inequity, inequality, these things just cannot, you cannot achieve your way out of these things. And we have stupidly believed that lie. You can't. Mm. And so what we see very much with Wallace is that there is, um, and in in a way it's kind of depressing despite the realism, realism, but the more you learn about this life and you learn so much about his life in this one, the more you realize that, this story only ends one way. Even before I knew right. how it ended, I knew how it ended, you know? Right. And mm-hmm. so um, it's just kind of a sad resignation to it. Throughout this, though, I appreciated how they positioned Wallace's innocence against the harder world that he was in, even though it was only bits and pieces. Because if you think about all the moments that he has on there, like the McDonald's conversation, um, playing with the toys, is that he was always a really nice start counterbalance to Bodie, to D'Angelo, to even Poot, to show you that, you know, these are still children that we're dealing with and they don't know a whole lot, you know? Yeah. And in a very simple message, I mean, not everybody is good at being bad. You said everything I said, but smarter and quicker. I'm just saying, (laughs) I mean, mean, it's like not, not everybody is good at being bad. And Wallace just turned out to just not be good at being bad. It just really wasn't for him. I do want to say one thing before we move off Wallace with the LeBron James thing. Now that we have a whole bunch of time, let's go ahead and uh, agree on what LeBron James' vital stats are. Because it goes, bruh. I'm sick of hearing, hey, man, (laughs) I'll tell you why LeBron better than Jordan. Because who can move like that at 6'9", 375 pounds, (laughs) 0.145? I'm like, dog, it goes from Le- LeBron literally, LeBron literally, in the, depending on who you talk to, LeBron goes from 6'9", 280, okay? Damn. To six, I've heard, bro, I've heard people say he's 275. 
how he moved like that. Like six nine, it, it, and sometimes he's sometimes he's six eight, two fifty. That's if he has a bad game. If he has a good game, he's six nine, four hundred and twenty five pounds with a seven. I, I, look, figure it out. He's big and he's fast. But I need to, I need people to figure out exactly what it is. This is it. After this, we got all of this. No NBA. I want to hear from LeBron. I want to hear from all of them. What are your what is it? What are your what's your deal? Like right now, I don't want to. I don't want to keep doing this, man. Yeah, like, like, the, but if I if I had to take a guess, he's six eight two forty ish. That's my guess. He's, That's my the guess. Dude is he's, he's six eight two fifty exactly. That's where he's at. But but watch watch the next time he dunk from like the third dot or something like that. How, how can he fly at six nine seven hundred and twenty five pounds? Come on, bro. You All know right. who I um you know who I hear that about very frequently is is they do the same thing with Zion. They do the same thing. <laughs> they, yeah, like, but Zion is either like the lowest I've heard is two seventy, and the highest I've heard is like three fifteen. I was like, oh, okay, hold up. Like what? Yeah, but what, Zion. The difference with Zion is he's actually twelve hundred pounds. <laughs> now I know. Now I know. It's the, the, the difference with him is Zion. Zion's Zion's six one, twelve hundred pounds with a seventy inch vertical leap. I've never seen anything like. Okay, we've gotten off on the tangent. Yes, but, but yes. it's okay. It's a good tangent. One thing. Right. Um, I. One final thing, it's a it's a statement slash question that I have for you. Did you did you think about or did you find it at all interesting that D'Angelo, he doesn't seem he has some sympathy for Wallace taking Brandon's death as hard as he is for sure. But it was interesting to me that he didn't have more sympathy for him, considering did he literally just go through the same thing with Reginald Gant? I mean, he may not have. But it was very similar where once the police start saying, hey, man, this 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 dude didn't do nothing. It was your fuck up that did it just because he simply saw you is his crime was he ran into your ass in the elevator on the wrong day. So it just was interesting to me that he couldn't connect the dots there. I think there's a difference. I think even though D'Angelo is as free thinking as he is in the world that he exists in, there's a difference. The difference is Reginald Gant didn't really do anything. Reginald Gant was just a working man. Brandon robbed the stash house. So with D'Angelo, would he have liked to have seen Brandon get done like that? Probably not. But at the same time, in the game, which Reginald Gant was not in the game, the working man, you know what I mean? In the game... D'Angelo probably looks at it like, look, you know, it, it, so he, he says it in the episode. You know, sometimes you got to send a message. Fucked up, yo. I mean, damn. Sometimes you got to send a message, yo. If you're going to be a, a drug dealer, especially an upper-level drug dealer, upper-level to middle management drug dealer like D'Angelo Barstale is, you got to live with the fact that, you know, sometimes you got to break a couple of eggs. You know, that's the way that that goes, so... Uh, in that particular situation, I think that might have been the distinction that he made. Yeah. I mean, and then maybe the, uh, I guess the the way he was able to sort of live with it to a degree was looking at it as if Reginald Gant had brought, them, brought that on himself. Right. Because, yeah, he made the mistake of accidentally running into him in the elevator, but you know, he didn't accidentally testify against him. He made the right. choice to to actually do that. Right. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more Way Down in the Hole. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. 
They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. So what did you think were um, the best scenes from, from this episode, aside from the ones that we talked about Wallace? Omar identifying Brand- Brandon's body. Yeah. That was my number one why. scene from this episode. No, my number one scene. I'll tell you why. That's uh, There are a couple of the scenes that I like. Uh, I just think as far, the, obviously the opening scene with Wallace and the kids is a fantastic scene. Tells you so much about the character. I, I love this. The two coolest moments that Avon Barksdale has, one of them is in this uh, particular episode. There's another cool moment. I'm not going to spoil it for people, but it's a ridiculously cool moment where you can just see how powerful he is. But I'm not going to spoil it for people in this episode because people are starting to get a little antsy about the spoilers. I noticed that. <laughs> Newsflash, the show came out in 2002. But look, when he walks through the court and it's kind of that slow-mo, belly, steady, are you ready? And he's flanked with the guys and you just see kind of how he's peeping everything. He's watching the street, blah, 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 blah. You see how everybody kind of stands up straight when he when he comes through. It's like, you know, Obama walking into the cracked out White House or something like that. Not that Obama's White House was cracked out, because I know that they'll take that and it'll be the next violation since it was cracking the Obama White House. <laughs> no, I'm saying he was the Obama of that situation. You could see the way he moved. He had that walk. But the best scene is when um, McNulty, during the scene where McNulty's with his, with his kids, he ends up taking his kids along with Omar to identify Brandon's body. It is the first time... And one of the only times you see something in the wire, which is an expression of pure love. The one thing that you don't see in the wire as much is just love. You see obsession. You see longing. You see regret. You see anger. But Omar loved this boy. He loved him. That wasn't just his little Saturday night thing. That was his lover, his boyfriend, his companion, the other part of him. And man, shout out to Michael K. Williams, who really gets it in in that scene. He sees Brandon. He cannot even take it. And then when he lets that scream out. (laughs) The release that you can hear of all the anguish and how they did that. It just shows you that this was a deep connection that these two people have. And I can't think of too many other times in the series 
where it talks about just a personal deep connection between people and the way that influences uh, the movements they make. There's maybe one other time Bubbles goes through something a, a couple of seasons from now, maybe one other time, but this particular time I'm like, that was his whole heart and he just watched his whole heart get mangled and ripped apart. Yeah, you felt his anguish and I thought it was terrific with how he brought that humanity to the show, but also to the fact that we're talking about um, a gay couple. And I I don't think those displays of humanity and certainly not some of the affection that we've seen uh, Omar give to Brandon in the early part of this season, of this season, like those, these things were not the norm on television at all. And especially in the, the kind of macho environment and world that Omar is in for him to have this reaction to his lover being killed, I thought was um, one of the most poignant and stark and just like a really critical moment. Interesting reading the backstory on that in all the pieces uh, mattered by Jonathan Abrams, which by the way, Lester actually says that in this episode when he tells prayers. All the pieces matter. Originally, the, uh, the director did not want Michael K. Williams to play it that way, that they wanted him to do it more gangster style and to not show a lot of emotion. And it was a creative fight, if you will, between the, I think it was the director of the photography and the actual director. And they decided, you know, um, I guess the director of photography just said to Michael K. Williams, you know, I think that people will want to see some humanity here. And he sort of took in, both of their input and made it into what we saw is that Omar was still very much a G with how he responded to this, but he wanted in that moment to communicate the level of love that he had for him. And as you said, so that people would disavow the notion that this was just, you know, um, this was just some careless affair for him. It was, it was much, uh, you know, kind of deeper than that um as i said at the top of this podcast of course what episode would be complete without the um crackhead adventures of batman and robin of johnny and Mm. bubs as they continue as they take their shit to another level they just resourceful man i mean they are yeah they are i'm a bit you know what i I gotta be honest with you johnny is a bad influence on bubbles man you you ain't never lied (laughs) like like but like johnny went away got that ass waxed he was in and, and when he came out bubbles had a job bubbles was selling fruit so just so y'all know johnny was away uh relaxing with his feet up you know getting over kind of getting beat up he's got a colostomy bag and all of that stuff like that now and um and when he comes back we we, we see bubbles bubbles is actually working do at a straight job selling fruit bubbles keeps trying to get right johnny not only comes and tricks Bubbles, not tricks Bubbles, but convinces Bubbles to get in with a copper stealing scam. He steals fruit from the fucking fruit stand that Bubbles is working at. Johnny is a bad influence on Bubbles. You know what? If not for Johnny, Bubbles might have had like three kids. And I wonder if Johnny is the one that got Bubbles hooked on the dope in the first place. I don't know. Probably not because he's much younger. But John, Bubbles was doing okay. Straight days worked. And all of a sudden, he back out there ripping and running with Johnny and Huck. Huck just came out of nowhere. That was just, Johnny just, uh, we, we just see Huck all of a sudden 
Huck is just a, 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 a dope fiend that Johnny just picked up somewhere. <laughs> but you're so right about this because they, uh, they sort of position their relationship as if Bubs is schooling him on the game, right? Trying to teach him how to be. Bubs is the epitome of work smarter, not harder. That's, the, that's what mm-hmm. Bubs is trying to do. And Johnny yeah. is the opposite, right? It, he will try 25 foolish things that will, all of which will probably give him within a, a hair step of being killed. And it does not at all convince him to maybe recalibrate his plan, to maybe think it out a little better. He just comes up with dumber and dumber plans. And somehow this is all very impressionable on Bubs. He knows the schemes are ultimately dumb, but he still goes along with it anyway. And Johnny is just so excited whenever he's finally able to pull off one of his foolish, dumbass plans. And I feel bad for Bubs, who, despite his addiction issues, has to be saddled with a complete moron. Um, yeah. Bubs is better than that. He's having a dope thing. He's better than that. Uh, yeah. But I did think that when they sold the copper to the construction guy. 40 cents. Well, no, not 40 cents a foot. No, sir. No, sir. Look, respectfully, I got to tell you, all right, for 40 cents a foot, you might as well go ahead and drive one out to Home Depot. I right, pay them. They're going to charge you, what, 45 45, 50 cents a foot. So copper that isn't stolen. Look like 35 cents. 35 cents a foot. And that's all that's all the respect I have for y'all. Okay, what y'all trying to do in our community with these uh these quality domiciles here. 30 cents a foot. Take it or leave it. I would also put that in the bucket of best reflection of real life, only in the sense, and this is what I loved about the wire in general, is that the wire gave us a panoramic view of the drug trade. It wasn't one group benefiting over the another. It was showing how everybody was complicit. So this Mr. Upstanding Construction Guy who is trying to complete some project is not above, for the sake of profit, buying copper from a crack from a crackhead and not caring where he got it from, what he had to do to get it, and for that matter, the feeding he's habit. He he's feed the habit he's feeding, rather. So everybody is complicit in the drug trade, even the fucking construction guy. Yeah, you know what? Um, that's real. I, I might have lived with somebody at one point, somebody that had a a very important role in my re- rearing and upbringing. Uh, someone that might have raised a lot of people who look like me and that once went and bought a skill saw uh, for $15. <laughs> and I remember talking to this man who also happens to look a lot like me. Hmm. Some people say he looks exactly like me. Hmm. He's about 25 years older. And I remember uh, looking at this man and going, why did you buy a skill saw from that guy? And this this man could not hide his glee in having, he owned a construction company. He was he was one of the most upstanding people I've ever known before. I get home and my mother goes, that skill saw is hot. And I'm like, what you mean hot? Hot how? It's not hot. We haven't even turned it on yet. She goes, it's hot. Somebody stole a skill saw and then sold it to this guy who I'm not going to tell you exactly who he is, but I guess you guys can guess who he is. So that is so real. Like, uh, the hood is not, there's no way to escape it. And I I just want everyone to know this. There's no way to get out of it, right? Nas has a a lyric, uh, uh, the dope kept the hood from starving, right? And Whereas I didn't grow up in a place where it was that severe. I did grow up in a place where the white T-shirt that you might be wearing, you might have bought it on a discount. Okay. Uh, The cell phone that you might be using, 
that you that they would say, hey, only use the cell phone like after five o'clock. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever. The cell phone that you might use, all of these things are floating around in the ecosystem and in the economy of places like this. So that guy who's in there doing that, uh uh doing that construction project, his bottom line is to the people that he's contracting for. And the cheapest price he can get them means that he's gonna be able to come back um and get another contract from somewhere else for another great price. And so if Bubbles is coming through with the copper, number one, he knows he can short Bubbles because it's not a real negotiation. And number two, he didn't come up. But I like I like about Bubbles. Bubbles realized he was being used because after that scene, they take the copper, they go get high. Bubbles, Bubbles tops off with one more. And it was almost as if Bubbles says, I'm going to top off with one more. Can I have one more? He tops off with the one more or, or whatever. Uh, he, he's sitting down. Or maybe this was before he topped off, and he says in a in a in a in a heroin sort of uh, infused stupor. We're gonna wait for that cheap ass speculating motherfucker to put that good copper line back into them row houses he's fixing up, and then before the drywall get up, <laughs> we creep back in there and steal that shit right back. <laughs> Thirty cent a foot. Gotta come back at a motherfucker <laughs> for that, you know? Yeah. So for Bubbles, heroin is not just an addiction. It's like a performance-enhancing drug. Like, it made him smarter. He got high on heroin. And like if I smoke some weed, I don't have a coherent thought. I can't do nothing. You're like, Bubbles was on heroin thinking of more scams, man. I'm telling you, Bubbles, the best addict ever, man. Tell best me. addict and best snitch, huh? He's both. <laughs> Both, both, and and the best addict, the best snitch. Man, don't hate on Bubbles in the wire power rankings, which we're gonna get to at some point. Bubbles top five all time, man. Ooh, all right. I, I can dig it. I can pick up what you're putting down. Uh I also say, you know, it, it, when you were talking about the hood commerce, essentially, I didn't know it was two things I didn't know were illegal until I got to college. I didn't know that it was illegal to I knew like being drunk and driving was illegal, but I didn't know it was actually illegal to consume liquor in your car. I had no, I had no idea because virtually every adult I knew, and I don't think it's just a Detroit thing, but I don't know. It seems like Detroit is more conducive to this because when you go into the party store, we call them party stores. You go to a party store there, they're all liquor stores. They give you whatever you want and they ask you, do you want a cup of ice to go with it? Because the assumption is you're oh going to drink. God. Yeah. Jesus. Right. Detroit we're from so Louisiana, f- so you know. Detroit, no, no, no. I don't, we ain't never done that. Detroit what? is so fucked. Like, I, like, I, I got to start an outreach center for Detroit. Like, I, like we got we to gotta really do some mentorships. So you go to Detroit and they ask you if you want a cup of ice to drink the shit outdoors. Nah, y'all, I, I thought we had it. Detroit is off the fucking meat rack. Oh, and not only that, any, any liquor you could get in a shot form. And they keep them, they'll say, do you want it chilled? And then if you say, like, if you go in there and get a pint of Hennessy, right? They'll say, do you want it chilled? You say, yes. They go to the refrigerator. They get you a pint of chilled Hennessy. They put it in a bag. Then then they ask, cup of ice. Most times, a lot of times you say yes. They put a cup of, they give you a cup of ice and you about your way. Because the assumption is you're going to drink it in the car. That's why I know the shit was illegal because it's offered to you in the store. So I had no idea that open alcohol container was a thing. I was like, oh, that's illegal? Wow. The other thing I didn't know 
was I didn't know it was illegal to buy hot shit. Didn't know this because oh, yeah. we have been buying hot shit for so long. I mean, my mother, she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't overt with it. But I mean, as a kid, like I had video game systems. You know who always had the best video games? The crackheads in the neighborhood. Instead of paying $50, $60 for them, you get that shit for $10. $10 for double dribble? Uh, hello? Yeah. They they had to have the guy, they had to have the sheriffs come to the school and tell us you can't buy anything that was stolen. I remember like the sheriffs, like in in Baton Rouge, the sheriffs would come to the school and they would be like, don't do crack. And then they would show you, they would always show us athletes that we couldn't really relate to. Like at that point, it was they they showed us a video with Richard Petty, like driving around a NASCAR track, talking about don't do drugs. It was like, who is this motherfucker? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like I'm not gonna do dope just because he says he's not gonna do. It. I'm gonna do dope because my uncle is 114 pounds. But it, it, like for for him, they had, I remember there was a specific thing. They were like, yo, just to let you know, it's not only wrong to steal, but if you have something that's stolen, that's wrong too. I was like, God damn, for real. Like I thought they had just made that rule. I was like, they changing everything. It's going too far. But but yeah, so b- back to the show. But yeah, Bubbles gets back into it. And like, like I said, once again, whenever Bubbles takes one foot forward, uh Johnny seems to yank that foot back for him, man. Also, I thought uh Daniels had a lot of important movement in this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I thought one of the biggest developments other than Wallace and seeing how he lives. And I would add as a third, maybe of 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 the cops turning Omar into their snitch which wait uh, between omar and and bubbles you would still get bubbles omar was a kind of an excellent snitch too you know yeah but omar didn't really love the snitch life i mean he didn't commit to it the way bubbles did like with the hats and shit yeah omar was a revenge snitch he was a lover scorn snitch you know what i mean omar 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 snitched as part of his code bubble bubbles kind of snitched for the same reason initially but Bubbles also had a whole snitch economy. O- Omar had some moments, some snitch moments, which is another just fascinating aspect of his character, uh, being that he still was looked at as the most gangster, and he openly worked with the police department. Once again, I'll say this. Omar Little openly worked with the police department. So... Uh, it's just another remarkable aspect of his uh, of his character um, that he gets so much love when when that's a, when that's a thing for him. Yeah, I mean, he was unapologetic about it because uh, you know even in this where he riding around with Kim and McNulty, they're like, "Don't you want to like hide?" Or he's like, "Oh, I don't scare." He don't give a fuck about them being seen right. with them, and he is he wants to flaunt being a snitch so he can eventually. Uh, his hope is that eventually he'll get to rub this in Avon Barksdale's face so he could know exactly who was responsible for putting the bracelets on him or anybody that was, um, you know, also close to him as well. So Omar vowing revenge is a is a major moment in here and how he choose to exercise at least one part of his overall revenge. Sweet Jesus, I'm a worker. This is one of the best lines in the wires entire uh series um there's some other really great lines in this one because uh <laughs> your boy i think it was your boy d'angelo who said uh when it comes to pussy ain't no free she want a house she want a car she wants some new clothes a necklace she wants some pocket change you know a trip down to the shore and she want a credit card with her name on it ain't no such thing as free right 
when it comes to pussy, you ain't no free. <laughs> Ahead of his time on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I just like the matter-of-fact way in which he says it to the girl that he's seen. I mean, that was that, that's 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 arguably D'Angelo's most gangster moment. It's like that's something that we say to the fellas. Come on, man. Hey, hey, bro, I'm taking the roots, like, Chris. Nah. You taking her to roots, Chris? <laughs> Come on, man. You know, pussy ain't free, and they're all, all right, cool. But like to say that to the girl that you're seeing, I was like, God damn, D'Angelo, you don't want to at soft, least change it. Soft shit. <laughs> yeah, change it to vagina, or maybe say love. Maybe say love don't cost a thing, or maybe love does cost a thing. Maybe put it in a in a in a in a in a nice uh 80s movie Nick Cannon Patrick Dempsey title type of deal. Well, nah, he didn't do that. He just looked a little bit and bit the bacon that she was cooking. She, in you, his you, shirt, in his kitchen. In his shirt, bit the bacon that she was cooking, and then said, Yo, ain't nothing free when it comes to pussy. I'm like, wow. All right. <laughs> but it this that scene worked. By the way, let's put, talk about that scene real quick. That's a scene right there that lets you know. Uh, the level of comfortability that uh, D'Angelo and Chardin are starting to have with each other. She's cooking for him. He's telling her, you know, things are getting basically serious. He's talking to her about past relationships and his baby's mom. Um, and I think that that's a scene where we first start to see that this thing between them is going to become a thing. Yeah, and I, I cracked up because uh, even though the relationship is, is blossoming, uh, as you pointed out, she still didn't mind taking a shot at his mama. My mama always said, don't let them get to cooking. Once they get into your kitchen, ain't nothing left to do but give them a key to your house. I don't want no key. I don't want no house. And your mama don't know shit about me. Damn. All right. Okay. Fresh out the gate there. Uh, did you have a best reflection or worst reflection of real life from this particular episode? Um... Uh, the best reflection of the world of, of of real life is the word lit. The word lit was used in here. Not only the best reflection of world uh, of real life, but it's also what age the best. Um, when the other police officer, the, the the white police officer, his name escapes me right now. The drunk guy, he comes in. He's lit at nine in the morning. It's lit. Little do we know. Did the wire invent the term lit? I know that lit typically meant drunk, but now lit means in any way having a great time. You know what I mean? Is he already lit? Like, Van, you lit your dog. I was lit. So I'm like, yeah. So that was kind of like a, a, one of the best reflections of, of, of real life for me and a, and a, um, a, a, a sort of what's aged the best, what's aged the best, best reflection of real life at the same time. But another best reflection of real life is just, uh, to me, um, Wallace himself and the way the character reacted to the murder. Uh, I just know a lot of kids that there was a breaking point. You know what I mean? Uh, they did all of this stuff um, and that there was a breaking point. The worst reflection of real life to me seems to be this thing that's going on between Hurt, Carve, and Bodie. Seriously, how are you out? Look, I'm gonna tell you something. Okay, this is just my opinion, but... uh. The juvenile system in this city is fucked up. It's a big ass <laughs> fucking joke. No offense. Fuck. Fuck. Hey. Look, give me a ride down to my grandma's. We'll call it even. I've never heard of anybody talking about a back and forth of them going on 
with one or two cops. I know that there's one or two cops that do this these these things. There was an officer, there's a guy named Friendly. Uh, they called him Friendly in South Baton Rouge. Um, but as far as any of my homies getting in his car and then riding home with him, that one just seemed like a worse reflection of real life for me. Yeah, um, that one, uh, I would definitely agree with you about that one um, because, you know, it was, it, it did, there were times with Hurt Carver, I know they, Hurt Carver and Bodie, where they would have some surprising moments, but they, they'd have some horribly uncomfortable moments, particularly as their their continued beatings of Bodie. It just, it it did get to a point where you were just like, wow, this is a little, a little much. So, of course, you know I'm not going to let this go past, this episode go past without your favorite thing, a Stringer Bell fuckboy moment. No, no. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> you need to stop resisting. It's happening. So, naturally. Oh, Jamil. Oh, oh Jamil, be careful. Well, be careful. You know what you just said? Mm. You just said you need to stop resisting. It's happening. They're going to take that clip, Jamil. They're going to take that like, uh, ideas. They're going to take that clip and you, you're going to be all over Bright Park. Oh, jeez. I know. <laughs> Suddenly, yeah, I know. I'm gonna be uh, uh, against consent, right? That'll be right. that'll be that'll be what. Stop, Jamel Hill. Stop resisting. It's just happening. <laughs> so funny. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm glad you're abused by this. Um, right. So, as as you all recall, if you've been watching up to this point, it was Stringer who gave D'Angelo the plan to basically, you know, start bleeding his his underlings dry. Because then he'd be able to find out who the snitch was because they thought it was a snitch. They have not caught on that the police are on to them and are have amped up their surveillance. They think they got a snitch in the ranks. And they're also somehow unaware of the fact that an organization that has become as big and as successful as they are, they somehow don't factor in that, oh, Omar could have just simply been watching you. Because it's not like you're doing this stuff in such a James Bond style um you know, way that they would not be able to understand that you were moving your stash houses. So Stringer Bell gives D'Angelo this plan. All right, you bleed the underlings, you'll figure out the person that's still eating, that's the one that's doing the snitching. Right. When you say bleed, you mean don't pay don't them. Don't pay them. That's exactly right. right. Not literally bleed, yeah. which I guess I should clear up given the nature of the series, right? Yeah. Um, but it does not unearth a snitch because, of course, it wasn't no snitch, as we all know. What it does is... It causes two people in the crew to start stealing, which is Cass. Cass was one. I can't remember the other character's name. Start stealing. And so one of the scenes that happens in this episode is that D'Angelo breaks a bunch of eggs because he sees her coming from the store because they he has noticed and caught on to the fact that they were still that they were stealing from him because he wasn't paying them. So basically, Stringer Bell and his fuckboy plan once again backfired because all it did, luckily D'Angelo was smart enough not to punish them for something that he incited. When you don't pay people who are working, yes, they're more likely to hate your ass and steal from you, which is why it was always a bad plan, which I'm not surprised because it came for Stringer. So there you go. Okay. So I, I just got to, Jamel, the glass is half empty uh, Hill, I guess the glass is half empty everywhere except for in Detroit, where they'll give you a glass of ice so that you can fill that motherfucker up. But look, it, 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 this is the way I look at it. It's just as important to find out that there is not a snitch as it is to find out that there is a snitch. Because if there's not a snitch, and I'm going to be the Stringer Bell apologist on this podcast, I can see Definitely. already. 
if there's not a snitch, then you need to know that so you can find out what it is. You just didn't like Molly's Game or Rock and Roller or No Good Deeds or one of these other. This I think this is an Idris Elba thing for you. It's not. I'm have to, I love Idris I think, Elba. I do. I don't know. I, I do. Don't know, totally. Man. Were you the one that was against the James Bond thing? I don't no, know. I, like, I actively campaigned. There are Twitter receipts. I actively campaigned for Idris Elba to be James Bond. You just hate Stringer. At least Stringer was Stringer. Be honest. You know what I want you to do? I want you to say something nice about Stringer Bell about this episode. Just, just do it. Say something nice about Stringer. Say something nice about Stringer Bell. I mean, he completes sentences sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess. That's good. But, it's so a, but it, I don't think it's a bad character. People need to make the distinct, distinction. I am not saying Stringer Bell is a very good character. It's the people who can really act, who really are great at their jobs, that they make you have an emotionally visceral reaction to their very existence. And I also, maybe I'm going so hard on Stringer because I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed that the first time that I saw The Wire, I was too blinded by Idris Elba's finest. I was too blinded. I did not realize that ultimately he was playing a despicable character that I should have hated from the beginning. And I blame that on Idris. You distracted yeah. him. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, he the dude is tall. <laughs> the dude is yeah, tall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say. I was so distracted that I now that we are doing this podcast and I'm able to take a deeper, more introspective look, I have come over to the side of right. I am on the right side of history. And Stringer Bell is a fuckboy. So you can... Look forward to these moments in every podcast in which I will point out in great and stunning detail the accuracy of his fuckboyitude. Hmm. Who won the episode for you? The game won this episode. Interesting. The game won this episode because of what we see unfolding with Wallace. Um, Here is somebody, uh, as we've said throughout this podcast, and in particular when we're talking about him strictly, is that... Here is somebody who, um, although involved in the game, had a very naive idea of what the game was really about, despite the seriousness of what he was doing, who he was around. And in great and stunning detail, he is able to find out, um, discover or be hit with reality that he is not just somebody who is a more of a, a commerce participant in this. Like he's not just making money on this. This is not just a job. This is something that he can get other people killed with just a word. He doesn't have to have a gun in his hand. He doesn't have to be selling somebody um, some bad drugs or selling, continue to sell somebody drugs that literally his words can cost somebody his life, cost somebody their life and not just cost them their lives, but they can get bloody tortured, abused in a way that's completely inhumane. And Seeing how this puts Wallace on a particular path, the winner is definitely the game because the game got another one. They're all a part of this game. They all eventually have their own um, come to Jesus moment with the game. But with Wallace, it is so much more stunning and powerful because he was never cut out for this to begin with. And that's exposed. And the power that this game can have over young men like him is is very perfectly on display. So I got the game. Who do you have? I got Wallace. I think Wallace won the episode uh, just because this episode is kind of toned in the, it's told in the tone of his character. He's got the, you know, in terms of the, 
when we talk about who won the episode, you know, with the with a lot of Ringer podcasts, it's like a, a almost a differing way that you kind of um that you kind of come to that conclusion, right? Who was the coolest in an episode? Uh, who had the biggest, you know, if you're doing a Game of Thrones episode, uh, it's very easy to kind of figure out who won that episode, who might have done the coolest stuff, uh, whatever. Um, with with The Wire, it's always going to be about impact for me. Who impacted the episode the much? That's why, that's why I really like um, your answer. My answer is Wallace. I feel like Wallace had the most impact. He didn't have the most scenes. Um, Wallace had the most impact in this episode. It was almost told through the tone of his character. It almost kind of took on the tone of his character. This episode did. It was kind of forlorn, uh, like very weighty. Um, it was a lot about loss. It was about what Wallace lost. It was about what Omar lost. You know what I mean? Uh, so that that kind of had to do a lot with this particular one. Uh, something else I want to point out about this episode is also the episode where I realized that two characters have a lot in common. Daniels and D'Angelo. Oh, do tell. I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah. You have my respect. Now you got my attention. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. When D'Angelo finds out that Cass is stealing, what does he do? He takes her off the stash and puts her on lookout. Does he, he, he tell? He covers for her. Covers for her. Did he tell String, Stink, Weebay and Avon that she was stealing? No. Do you know why? She ends up like Brandon if he does that. When Daniel sees that uh, one of his detectives is drunk or that one of his detectives has, has done something, what does Daniels do? Does he sell them out to the... No, he never does. What he always does is within the system that he knows eats and uh, eats people and spits them out, he knows that system. He can access that system and he protects his people. These are both guys in middle management places that they probably didn't think that they were going to be in. And they have to make decisions at some point about how much allegiance they're going to show to the rules and how much allegiance they're going to show to their people. Now, we see Daniels make a decision in this episode to actually kind of break chain of command in favor of his people. Um, and we're going to see a little bit later on D'Angelo do the exact same thing. He doesn't quite do it here, but he's going to do it the exact same thing. So when I looked at these characters, uh, you know, even though Daniels, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, they remind me a lot of each other in the way they got the backs of their people and just kind of the way they view things, you know, um, Obviously, Daniels is a little bit more cut out for what he's doing, and he probably has a a, a different motivation uh, for being a career cop than D'Angelo Barsdale does for being a career criminal. But I just saw these guys, and I'm like, look at them look out for people. Look at them understand that what happens to people. Um, uh, and they also kind of were guys that were both kind of controlled by the people above them in a real way. One guy, the thing that was controlling him was the fact that his uncle was kind of running things, his uncle who was family. The other guy, the thing that was controlling him is that Burrell has something on Daniels. And so because he has something on Daniels, Daniels feels a sense of allegiance to him. So they have to operate within these entire things to make sure that people who they're in charge of don't get exploited, A, 
and don't get fucked up bet worse for mistake that they've made be and i just kind of saw that come in this episode no that's a that's a great observation because they're both classic middle managers where they have classic just middle managers. yeah just enough power to do a few things but not enough power to really change the culture of where they are um i'll mention uh before we get out of here uh my file this away later moment was um you know omar gives a bird up on the gun a bird worked for ava yeah it's one of his shooters had to use this real sweet gun he got, a, a 380 from uh, Austria or Australia, something like that. But I know we love that gun. A 380. Yeah, 380. You get him, you get the gun. Because Bird too dumb to throw a gun like that off. You know, also a little piece of trivia. Got some for you. So oh, you go. mentioned the. I love this. Yeah, you mentioned the drunk cop that Daniels tries to get together, gives him two choices. Either dry yourself out or go up on those rooftops wet. If you recall in this episode, the drunk cop visits uh, his boy, the one that got punched out, you know, that got, uh, that got fired on by Bodie in the hospital. That cop, uh, the one who got fired on by Bodie, is the father of T.J. Quinn. And for those who are like, who the hell is T.J. Quinn? T.J. Quinn is an investigative reporter at ESPN. Him and Mark Farinuwata wrote the book Game of Shadows, which brought down Barry Bonds. Wow. Did I blow your mind? <laughs> You did. Yes, that I is I love Game dad. of Shadows. What was the what was the what was the homie uh I call this dude the most solid dude in the history of the world? The homie that Barry Bonds has that went to Whoa. Homie hey, forever. Man. <laughs> homie forever. Yes. Doing time for his man. Yeah, no, I remember Game of Shadows. That that is an actual Oh, by the way, I got something. I got a tidbit Ooh. for you. Not now, later on. Okay. I got one for you. Shout out to a homie at Twitter. I'm going I'm to give him some credit. But somebody, shout out to, by the way, shout out to everyone at Twitter who is loving the show and giving us a tons of feedback and tons of little tidbits, things that we might have even missed. We love when you guys uh, interact with us on the show. It's fantastic. But that's a good one. Game of Shadows. You brought it all together. I, brought it I love that one. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Greg Anderson, would he be the Tony Stark of Homeboys? Would he be the greatest one? Let me tell y'all something. Y'all all talking about somebody somewhere that held it down for their homie. No one has held it down for their homie like Greg Anderson. Greg Anderson did that time, said, I'm not saying shit. Like, not, I'm not saying shit. Is he out now? Did he eventually get out? I assume, I think he did eventually get out. Uh, he, I mean, he had a nice little beard, but it wasn't like a forever beard. So I assume I'm that- I'm Greg uh, Anderson, Barry Bonds, whatever I need, Barry. <laughs> I like, you know what I'm saying? Send six tons of lobster to my crib with the butter already on them. If I if I want that, you better send it. My father's away moment uh, for later moment was one line, which I feel like is indicative of this show. Ross wants the Deidre murder to be brought in. They want to charge D'Angelo Barstadale with that murder. If they do that, they know that the cops are on them. The Barstadale organization knows the cops are on them. They change up, wire dies. So that can't happen. Daniels goes to bat for major crimes to give them like another month and to call Rawls off. This is bullshit. It was McNulty himself who made the ballistics match on these murders, and he's telling me to fight this. He knows you don't have a viable prosecution. So do you. So do I. And when he comes back into the office, McNulty, being self-centered as he is, just sort of uh, gets gleeful, runs away. Because he had almost dared Daniels to do something to keep the case going. Lester looks at Daniels and asks one question that is not just a file this away moment for later in the wire. It's a file this away moment for later in life 
but it's kind of the central question of the show to me. It cost you? And that's always the thing in the wire that we keep coming back to. The systems in this show are so concretely ingrained that if you play by those systems, you'll probably be okay. But when you do the right thing, the thing that's in your heart, the question that comes back and forth in the wire is, what did it cost you? What do you have to give up to do something right? And the reason why Lester asked that question and McNulty didn't is because Lester had been around. Lester had done things the right way long enough to know that it always cost you something. He had been in the pawn shop unit for 13 years. Why? Because he did the right thing. It always costs. Yeah, no, that's a great file this away uh, for later moment because this is what made the show so compelling. Good deeds on this show are 95% of the time never rewarded. Never rewarded. Everybody has to answer for acting like a human being, for doing the right thing, for even basically just doing their job. You get penalized for all of that. So yep. that was a very poignant question for Lester to ask. All right, that's going to do it for us. Um, like Van uh, said, and I, I definitely echo those sentiments, like thank you all just for the feedback in general that you've given this podcast so far. It's been really beyond what I could have possibly imagined. I know Van probably feels the same way. And uh, continue to dialogue with us as we go through this journey uh, together. It doesn't matter if you watch The Wire uh, one time, never watched it six times, whatever. Uh, we hope that you enjoy these deep dives and uh, this introspective conversation into what is the greatest series of all time. Don't add us, don't debate us, nothing. It is the greatest series of all time. So anyway, keep listening to us, keep watching The Wire, and we'll see you next time.